You're listening to Grow Yourself Up, a weekly mental health podcast hosted by Kath Cunahan. I'm a psychotherapist, writer, and speaker working in private practice in London. I specialize in the impact of our own childhood on our parenting and how we can heal and integrate our childhood trauma, wounding, and stress so that we can inhabit our full adult selves. Join us each week as we talk about all things growing ourselves up, how we can tend to ourselves in our parenting, generational healing, and overcoming the impacts of childhood trauma. Together, we will become more self-compassionate, connected, authentic, resilient, and heart-centered, so we can live our own full and beautiful lives. As a listener of this podcast, you're welcome to come over and join the Facebook group. So search on Facebook for Grow Yourself Up. It's a private Facebook group of all the listeners. And did you know there are journal prompts that go along with every episode? So sign up for the journal prompts on kathcunahan.com or go to my Instagram, kathcunahan, and sign up at the link in the bio there. And you will get my newsletter, Nurture, Heal, Grow, which contains all the journal prompts. Looking forward to seeing you in the Facebook group. The podcast is produced each week by the wonderful Audio Cafe. Thanks for being here. Welcome back. It's episode 74 of Grow Yourself Back. I mean, not Grow Yourself Back, Grow Yourself Up. Um, yeah, listen to me. I'm going to leave that in as I model imperfection for you. Um, so welcome. It's episode 74. It's Grow Yourself Up, not Grow Yourself Back. And um, I really wanted to say something um, about the guests on the show. You know, a huge, huge, huge part of my work is breaking down shame. I believe that shame um, is decimating in the way we experience it. Um, people behave, pe- people's behavior is so much driven by shame um, that they think they need to do certain things or behave in certain ways or virtue signal in certain ways because they are trying to get away from a sense of their own not good enoughness, which is always there's the shame that's underlying that. And so I am so profoundly grateful to each and every guest who comes onto the show, who shares their authenticity, their vulnerability, and actually allows us to lift the veil because we do not break down shame when we have projections of perfectionism all over the place. And in that lifting the veil and letting us see how, how like, other people live, we have an appreciation for ourselves. We learn, oh, okay, I'm okay. I, I have those struggles too. That person has those struggles and they're okay. And I'm absolutely passionate about that. So um, I really want to honor the guests. I want to honor my guest today. Um, and I want to say thank you. And I want you to understand that this is um, really like a big thing because it's much easier to sit here and project perfectionism out into the world and pro- and project that we've all got it. Well, let me speak from my point of view. It's, it's easier for me to project, I've got it sorted. Let me just tell you how I've got it sorted, and then you can follow me. But that is not going to help you love yourself. And at a deep core of my work is a desire that we all 
can get more of a sense of love, appreciation, um, gratitude, compassion for ourselves, because that is what will change the world. We need to find it first for ourselves, and then we can extend it to the whole world. Um, so my guest today is Josh Connolly. Josh is a resilience coach and an accredited breathwork facilitator. He is one of the UK's most influential mental health advocate, advocates, and he's spoken on BBC, the IT, ITV, and Channel 5 News. He's spoken in the House of Commons on policy for adult children of alcoholics, and he's contributed to mental health policy, and he's even advised the script writing team on Hollyoaks, which is like a like a soap opera running in the UK. He runs resilience workshops for village schools and global brands alike. And Josh is an ambassador for NACOA, which is a national charity supporting people affected by parents drinking. Um, you can find Josh on Instagram at Josh underscore FFW. And all the details for his socials accounts will be in the show notes. And you can work with Josh. Um, he's got a, 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 an online coaching program called NOU, which is six weeks. And he's also got a breathing um, a breath work community called Breathing Space. So all those details will be in the show notes so you can connect with him. And Josh and I discuss growing up in a dysfunctional family, how that's impacted our parenting. And I'm really grateful to him for his honesty and, and his authenticity and his modeling of um, loving ourselves as we go because we don't go from um, from our wounds and our trauma to like being a perfect parent. In fact, we never get to being a perfect parent. That is um an like an illusion. And um yeah, let's get stuck in and I hope that you find this valuable. Hi Josh. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us here today and um to share some of your story with us. Let's get straight stuck in. Tell us about your journey to fatherhood, what expectations you had about yourself as a father, how you were going to be different to your parents. Just give us, like, paint us the picture. Yeah, well, I'm going to, what I'm going to try and do here is, uh, firstly, thank you for having me on. Um, there's two pictures I sort of need to paint. My first daughter was born when I was 18 years old. Um, and it was a surprise and, and totally unplanned. And so, I was sort of catapulted from being a child who, who, who hadn't yet really transitioned into adulthood to having nine months to try and get myself together. Wow. That's a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. It was like, but I did what I, at that time what I did, which was just bite down on the gum shield, close my eyes and, and get cracking with it. But I do, I, I very clearly remember when my first daughter was born feeling the overwhelming sense of love in, in the hospital when I held this child in my arms. Um, and, and also an overwhelming sense of, I remember looking at, at, at her and thinking at some point, and this is what I felt at some point, you're going to have to get as far away from me as you can, because I'm not going to be able to deal with everything that comes with this. And I never said that openly, but I, and, and, and I don't know if I, felt it that explicitly but I can see that looking back and I went on to have four children in that relationship and I was a sort of a whirlwind really my second daughter was born when I was about 20 and then I had two boys all from these are all from uh the same mum I had two boys in the same year wow um yeah one in January one in December and I think for throughout the whole time I was I hadn't even figured myself out let alone 
parent in in um in that way and then and we'll probably get into some of the other stuff but i i my life sort of changed when i was 24 and i stopped drinking and then i have two children with my wife who i met when i was sober and i'm married to today and when they were born when the first of those two were born and the first of those two is seven now I was much clearer in uh, in myself and in what I wanted to do as a parent. I felt much more ready and I'm set. And, you know, I really set about becoming a father and growing into that role. Um, but as, as equipped as I, as I thought I was, I've probably am daily reminded of uh, how ill-equipped i actually am um, um so so yeah i get look that's the sort of overview of the journey that i've been on with my children and so there's six of them now is where i find myself today i love that six i said to josh before this it's a ready-made party i love hearing about bigger families because we actually don't hear about them so much you know because because we're much more tending to have smaller families and i came from a big family as well so i love that but tell me about how did you what made you get sober when you were 24 I think it's really like I should always caveat what I'm about to say by saying I don't really I don't really know that's that's the real answer because why did I get sober and some people don't it's very difficult to take full responsibility for it because I've seen so many friends along the way who haven't made it uh and 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 did I want it more than them did I finally reach a place that I don't know but what I do know is that my dad was a, was an alcoholic and I lost him when I was young. And I'm sorry. Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, like I learned from a young age, my mum actually would always say to me when I was a child, I watched your dad try and control his drinking. And she said, I can't tell you not to drink and I can't tell you what you should do. But what I do know is that if you ever get to a stage where you can't, you feel like you can't regularly control the way that you drink. She said, you will never, ever find a healthy relationship with it and you should quit. And I think that really, she really hammered that home. And I was 24 when I realized that, that I couldn't do that. And I think, look, the marriage had broken down. I'd had four kids. I recognized I was a terrible dad. And I knew unequivocally, actually, that I wouldn't be able to be a good dad while I drank. And I also recognized that I'd never be able to have a proper relationship with anybody if I drank because of the lack of control for me that came with drinking. I just knew if I was to fall in love with somebody and, and drink, the moment would come when I would go on a bender and disappear for three or four days and come home and, and, and have completely ruined everything that I'd built up. So I knew if I wanted those things and I desperately, desperately wanted those things, I knew the only option was to, was to quit drinking or was to try to quit. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a lot of self-awareness right there here and a lot of bravery as well, because to admit so many of us are so wounded in some sense that we don't want to admit we want a relationship, even though like deep in our soul, that's all we really want. Mm. So it sounds like you had an amazing amount of um, insight, even despite all the drinking. Yeah, I mean, perhaps, perhaps I can I can look back retrospectively with more insight now, and and perhaps sort of articulate what was going on more clearer than it felt at the time. But I remember as a child, right when 
You know, when kids say they want to be a footballer or a, uh, a doctor or, you know, a superhero, whatever. I just remember thinking, I want to have loads of kids and I just want to be a good dad. I, I, like I really just, that's all I cared about. And actually it was less than that. It was, I want to have loads of kids and I don't want to be an alcoholic. I remember, I remember thinking that as a kid. And yeah, I guess the, the, it just took me, I succeeded at having loads of kids. It just took me a little bit longer than, than it should have done to perhaps succeed at being a, a fairly decent dad. Tell us about the, having two different families at two different times when you were drinking and not drinking is a, is, is an amazing kind of comparison. But also tell me about that, th- that thing about not wanting to be an alcoholic like your dad. And then realizing at some point that you were perhaps very similar, because I think for the listeners of this podcast, when we're recovering from childhood trauma and whatever that might be, there's often a point in our journey when we realize I am doing exactly the same thing as I swore to God I would never do. And I'm not doing that with my children. How did you shift away from that? And how do you hold yourself compassionately? Because really the portal through, for, through which change happens is self-compassion. So how do you kind of love yourself with all of that? I think originally um, there, were, there were many times when I looked around in the house that I was raising my four kids in at the time and I could very clearly see that I'd become my dad. I'd become exactly what my dad was like. I remember feeling I used to go to football with a load of men and a lot of them knew my, my dad and I remember very, you know, being, explicitly being told you're, you're just like your dad and I remember, I remember like it making me want to recoil and I remember really feeling that. So at that stage, it was, it was really obvious in moments. And I remember seeing it and then wanting to run away from it, um, and wanting to bury it back down and being a bit of an expert at doing that. But I think when, when my life changed, it really changed when I was about nine months sober. And I'll tell you this now, because I think it's important to the question that you asked. I very seriously planned to not be here when I was nine months without alcohol. And that was because when I, when, when I stopped drinking, I thought, well, I'm just like my dad. So I'm an alcoholic, right? So, so if I stop drinking, everything will go away and it will be, everything could be solved and resolved. Um, but very quickly I realized that didn't happen, right? I still was behaving in ways that I didn't, that was still like my dad. I was still doing things. And now I couldn't blame it on alcohol because alcohol was gone and I was just left with, with the problem, right? And, um, that's when I made a very, what felt like a very honest, it felt very noble. It felt like the right thing to do to not be here anymore. And I went to see my kids and because I knew what was going to happen, the past became irrelevant and the future was non-existent. And for the first time ever in my life, I was present with my kids in a way that I'd never experienced before. And I, and I changed my mind, but more importantly than changing my mind, I realized that, that what was killing me was coming from inside. And I also realized that what I needed to do was be gut level, honest with myself before anybody else, gut level, honest with myself as quickly as I possibly could be. Um, and I've sort of stuck with that over the like 11 years that it's been since that moment. Um, and, and as much as I can, I really, really challenge myself to do that. What I would caveat that by saying is that, you know, I trick and deceive myself all of the time, you know, because to, to look in, to look myself in the mirror and, uh, and, and, and be really clear and honest about some of the, 
thoughts, feelings and behaviors that I'm allowing to play out in my life is, is not easy. But the, but, but, but the compassion, just to bring it to the question, let me summarize by saying this, that the compassion for me really does come through accountability, through being able to say, listen, this is who I am. Uh, this is how I've shown up. I believe I, uh, most of the ways that I show up are, are, are an attempt to try and get myself through to survive. Yeah. Uh, and, and kind of in doing that, I, I, I develop a, a lot of compassion for myself often. Yeah. Okay. And tell us, because I, I loved hearing what you said about how you were present. So as if when you decided you, you were planning suicide, that you just let go of the past and you stopped beating yourself up in a way so that it enabled you to actually be there. And somehow that's the essence of your work in now in, in, in your breath work and everything, because they're teaching us to be present and to kind of stop punishing ourselves with the past and the future. I love that you came to that so, sorry, organically. Yeah. And it, it has become, it's not just become the essence of my work. It's the essence of my life. And I think the reality is, is that those moments of presence, particularly in the times that matter to mo the most to me, with my family, with my children, are way more fleeting than 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 I wish they were. Uh, I, actually, I think one of the hardest things that I struggle with the most with the work that I do is how much harder I find it to be present at home with my children than I do in the work that I do. I can hold space for a group of people and be fully present and fully holding the space of them and fully in tune with them. And trauma plays out in my relationships. So when I'm at home and with my kids, those moments pass me by all too much, you know, far too much. Uh, and so I work as hard as I can to try and find those moments as much as I can, you know? Yeah, I really appreciate your realness and honesty about that because I think that is a struggle that many of us who've had trauma feel. And just, I want to say for the listeners that, you know, when we're at work, we're in our competent self, we're in our, in our adult self who can use some of our coping strategies like people pleasing or perfectionism or kind of even using our, our intellect as a way to, to get by. But when we are back in our families, um, our implicit memories are being triggered all the time. Um, our own trauma around love relationships gets triggered. And so we much more destabilize a lot of the time. And I think acknowledging that is really helpful because otherwise you can, you know, I've got lots of clients where there's this idea that in parenthood you should be present all the time. But if you've spent your whole life dissociating or using drink to regulate yourself or drugs or shopping or whatever you're using, you can't just like slip back into presence, Yeah, you know, and be like some magically 100% present person. So I really appreciate the realness because I think specifically in the cycle breaking community, there's this idea that we can try and, and we touched on this a bit earlier, that we can try and um, get it perfect. And I, lo I love what you said in response to me. Will you tell us a bit about what you said, where you said you hope that you can be present for your children in their healing? So there's a lot of like, uh, particularly when you, when, you know, if you look out online on social media and stuff, you see one of the common quotes is give your children a childhood they won't have to heal from. And, and I always say, don't put that pressure on yourself. Your kids are going to have to, if you, if you've been through it yourself, your children will have to heal from their childhood. They will have to do some work. And I, what I hope for my kids, and I, and I feel like I'm achieving it with some of my older children already is that they'll come to me and I might be able to play a part in their healing and I might be able to be with them and, and, and hold some space for them when they're in their adulthood. 
And I think that that's one of the quotes that I see. And I think, you know, I always say my children's struggles directly reflect the world that I brought them into. I can see that very clearly with some of particularly my first four children. But another one you always hear is be the parent that you needed when you were young. And um, I think we should be the parent for ourselves that we needed when we were young. Yes, I agree. I'd, I'm not the parent for my kids that I needed when I was young, because if I'm not careful, I parent my children from a place of like less than when they, they don't need what I needed when I was young. They need to be seen in all of their glory. Right. And in all of their wonder, and they need me to try and be today. They're today to present them in the way that they need today, you know? So yeah. Yeah. Much like we trick and deceive ourselves into, uh, like denying certain realities. I think it's so easy for us to sort of bring in, uh, our trauma into our relationships in ways that we think, you know, we, we're using sort of healing type language and all of that stuff. And it sounds very great on the outside, but sometimes if you scratch a little bit further down, it, it's same patterns, you know, the same patterns playing out in the same way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think uh, the key thing I think in the way that I language it is, is perfectionism and with perfectionism comes disconnection. Mm. So if we are desperately trying to be perfect and, via that um, mechanism we also try and then control our children often we are disconnected we're controlling and we're not present at all so then we are perpetuating exactly what we're trying not to perpetuate but moving into welcoming imperfection and really tending to ourselves i mean i think welcoming in our own perfection is some of the greatest work and loving ourselves through that yeah 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 look that's it's really easy for me to say easy. I mean, it's much easier for me to love myself when I've just done something amazing. Yeah. Like, and I've got myself for a situation by doing something amazing. What's harder is to love myself when I've just messed up. And by the way, when I mess up, it's always an attempt to get me through that moment. You know, I love a quote. For, it's not my quote. So I just say that it's Gabor Mate uh, says in one of his lectures, you can say to yourself that I'm a human being who in that moment had not yet found a better way to soothe my pain. So I'm going to forgive myself. And I think when you see things through that lens, it's really, it's really helpful, you know, because, uh, how do I love myself in that moment? Like, you know, like you would love your child. I love my children when they mess up as much as I love them when they do something really good. Right. It's really, it's much easier for me to see that in my children, um, than it is, for the way that we might, you know, talk about ourselves. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful quote. And I think there's so much compassion in there, yeah. which I think is kind of what we all need in huge dollops. And Josh, you said earlier that when you were younger, what you wished for was not to be an alcoholic and to be a dad. And then you said you wanted to be a good dad. How do you, how do you help yourself be present for your children? How do you um, see them for who they are? and not who you hope they might be, or um, if you, when your shame gets touched, how do you manage in the moment, like actually trying to turn up for them? Uh, I guess I should start by saying often I don't. Like I really think whenever I'm talking about any kind of parenting, I think if you, if you, if you get it right 20% of the time, I feel like I'm doing all right. If I do, like I feel I'm doing really well actually. But I work on my, I work on myself. I try and create the space that I need, um, in my life to make sure that I can be as present as I can for my children. And 
I hold myself responsible. I hold myself responsible. Holding myself responsible and accountable for the man that I am within my house on a daily basis. And I do that as quickly and as often as I can. If I'm, I remember once I was really struggling with my son. He's uh, 12 now. Um, and when he was around, I want to say seven or eight, we're going back a few years now. I was having a really difficult relationship. We was having a really difficult relationship, which in, in and of itself sounds, you know, it's hard to admit that I was having a difficult relationship with an eight-year-old. What, what can you give us a more color? What did a difficult relationship look like? Everything that he did annoyed me. Okay. Yeah. yeah? Uh, like if, if I'm going to put it plain and simply, um, and we would have arguments a lot. He would frustrate me a lot. That's how I was seeing it at the time. Um, anyway, I remember one night being in bed and saying to my wife, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do with him. And she said, he's not the problem, you are. And at, like at first, obviously, I was like, how dare you say that, <laughs> right? But then very quickly, I realized I was. And what, what I recognized within that relationship was that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a highly sensitive person, right? And I've, I've got lots of healthy defense mechanisms against that in my life today. And I've still got many, I would say, unhealthy ways of dealing with that, right? Or less healthy ways or yeah, that's how I'm going to frame it. And what my son was doing was pulling those down because he's exactly the same. He's very highly sensitive. When he was, when he was looking to me for support in those moments, he was having, I was, he was sort of, uh, this is all going on subconsciously, uh, I would add, but he was sort of, slowly pulling down the barriers to open me back up so that he could connect with me on his sensitivity. And so I was going in metaphorically holding my arms up in front of my face, defending myself of him all of the time, you know, dare he not pull any more of my barriers down. So when, once I realized that it made the relationship much easier because I realized how much influence I was having on it. And it wasn't all about managing his behavior or stopping him doing this or getting him to do, be new on this. It was about managing my emotional state and my own sort of nervous system through each interaction that we had. And when I did that, it didn't make the relationship instantly magical and we ran off into the sunset like Disney. But it meant that, it meant that the relationship was much more I was able to navigate the relationship much better, you know? And I think, look, I notice now, still today, the things I get most annoyed with my children about are the things that my wife gets annoyed with me about. And, and what's really interesting, what I can notice as a parent, is that, like, I'll always jump to uh, the reason that they're doing it is because they don't care about me. Yeah. yeah? So I'm, I'm quite a scattered mind. And so I will forget stuff a lot. Right. And I've had to, my wife's had to learn over the years. It's not about how much I care about something because that's the way that my mind is. And, you know, there's a whole conversation about the nature, nurture and all that sort of stuff. For me, it's a lot more nurture, by the way. Um, me too. Yeah. But so my mind, my scattered mind was a, a great coping strategy when I was a child, sort of not so much as an adult. I used to get really upset when my wife would say, you obviously don't care about it because I'd be like, you don't understand. It's not, it's not that I don't care about it. It's just the way you But of course, still now I find myself saying to my kids, like, again, my poor boy, who I keep bringing up because he's the most like me. My eldest daughter is two, but she's a bit older now. But, um, I'd say, well, if you cared, you wouldn't do that. And then I have to come away and think, 
you know it's nothing to do with care because because you know it's not you know but it's in again this is how we learn right because the learning there is what what is it that that makes me go straight to thinking he doesn't care just because he forgot something you know yeah and that's very there's so much i want to return to in that what you just said but i think what really struck me was your nature versus nurture thing and let's talk about the scattered mind thing but um, what you also said about you go straighter, they don't care. And actually, that's directly touching onto your inner child and how you felt as a child. And I think that some of the greatest work is us reparenting ourselves so we can be present. But how can you see how your childhood turns up in your own parenting? Like, how, how do you kind of make sense of that? You've just said it, right? So the inner child, I do a lot of inner child Reflections, particularly within, um, so I'm going to say every day, but I'd be lying to say every day. Most days when things are going as they should, I, yeah. I have a reflective space in the morning where I try and I do some breath work and try and get my mind into it. I have to do quite a lot of breath work to get my mind to slow down and calm. Then I get some, ref I get some reflective space in there and I always try and reflect on who I am as a human being, not just as a parent and a lot shows up for me there and as a result of that I spend a lot of time noticing so you know I will break down these interactions I have you know with my kids and I'll break down how the situation went and how it went and then I'll say you know I clearly I keep thinking he doesn't care he's 12 years old he forgot it. it doesn't mean he doesn't care so what's the message here and then I try and connect with my inner child um and through breathwork by the way I've had some massive sort of visual experiences. Shall I share one? Uh, Shall I share one? Yeah, yeah, I'd love so to. So I'm very visual. When, when, when I, if I do breath work for long enough, I get very visual. Now, because I'm quite visual in my mind, I, I sort of speak to myself through visions, uh, which sounds a bit crazy, but it's sort of all internal. And I'm very aware that w it's sort of like a, a sort of lucid dream where I make a sense of. So there was one um, instance that I had where I it was when I first started doing the work that I did. So I've been doing this like full time for like five years now. And one of the first addictions that I picked up was getting the love, getting love and plaudits from people. Yeah. So it becomes very, I'll be on a stage and do a talk to a few hundred people and they all tell me how amazing it is. Right. It's very easy then to devalue the love that I get from my wife and my children when I walk through the door, because there's only five of them, right? As, as horrific as that sounds, it's very easy to get addicted to the other thing. And also the family is much more annoying. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and they're always there. You don't go home from them. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. So my wife had been saying, you know, there was some friction coming in between me and my wife and she was saying they get the best of you and, you know, every, all you care about is your work and of course a typical sort of being trapped in addiction and using denial, I'd be like, she just, you know, hates that I'm so good or whatever. And that's the stories that was, anyway, I had this visualization and I was on, uh, weirdly, uh, an American talk show. <laughs> uh, and I was like, they were all cheering and talking about all this work that I was doing. And then the, the host pointed out that there was a child in the back kept looking out. And I was like, this is all in my mind. I was like, that's my, I was like, don't worry about them. Don't worry about them. They're all right. Like, and I was like turning around saying, Shh, shut up, shut up. And then anyway, eventually the host invited them on and they came on and it was my, I call it the little me, right? It was the little me. And they came and sat on my knee and the host was like, do you not like doing all of this amazing work? And then that little version of myself was like, no, I love, I love doing all of this work. I just feel like 
I often get forgot about. And it was like, ah. And in those kind of moments, then I have to go and I have to go. Then I've broken that sort of, I'm going to call it denial. I've broken that. And then I can go to my wife and my children and say, here's, here's what I think, right? Here's where I think I'm at. And I, I know that I've been hiding from it and I've actually been making you guys the problem, but here's what I've learned. So that only happens because I create the regular space, you know? Yeah, the practice. I, I yeah. create the, yeah, the practice, the sort of ritual of doing it all of the time. Um, and look, you don't have massive breakthroughs every morning, but that's the point, right? You do it loads and loads and loads. So the breakthroughs happen, right? They have the opportunity to happen. And I love the way you describe that because it sounds like you are, in addition to having a vision, it's something about something that's actually speaking from your own consciousness around what you might need and how often our inner child, all our vulnerability and pain is calling and we're just like, go away, go away, go away. And I think that parenting is a huge opportunity to deal with that. That like, you, you know, that saying children are our greatest teachers. I actually think it's so much that they connect us to our pain that needs to be healed. Yeah. 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 And in that sense, it's a great gift. Um, tell us, I think it's really interesting what you talked about, because I talk a lot about how our coping strategies that we learned in childhood, which were fabulous at the time because they helped us survive and even thrive in some cases, then become often really maladaptive in adulthood. And we may tend to label them a whole lot of things, but it's often actually just that it's a, it's kind of something that was a survival trait that's no longer that helpful. Talk to us about your scattered, what you termed scattered mind and how that, because I think, um, and like dissociation is also, I have sometimes, uh, had in my clinical practice people who've got an ADHD diagnosis, but also do a lot of dissociation. And I sometimes think we're getting confused between actually there's a massive amount of dissociation. It might not necessarily be ADHD. Yeah. And you know, my fear, my fear is, and, um, yeah, let me try and talk about this correctly. My fear is, is that the two are almost inseparable, right? That's, that's my fear in the world that we live in today. Um, and it's become a very difficult conversation to have, right? Because, um, what I've always done with any kind of label in my life is it becomes an entry point to incredible learning. It becomes a, a, an entry point often to community, to self-understanding, and then it restricts me. So, so what I mean by that is, uh, let's take alcoholic. When I, when I decided I was an alcoholic, it attached me to community. It gave, it helped me make sense. I learned all about what people say alcoholism is and addiction is. And I learned all about it and it made sense, helped me make sense of my pain. And then eventually. Did you do that in 12 steps? Sorry. Or in, in I went to 12, I went to 12 steps originally. Yeah. Um, eventually it became the thing that I, well, you know, I've treated somebody badly here, but I'm an alcoholic. That's just the way that I am. Right. It was always followed with this, just the way that I am. So I kind of broke free from that and thought, actually, this is, there's more to this. And then I looked at my childhood. Um, and then empath about eight years ago sort of exploded. It might have been exploded is a bit of a word that everybody would say. And then I was like, Oh my God, I'm an empath. And then I would meet loads of other people who were, had that level of sensitivity that I've got. And then, and then I slowly started to realize, hang on a minute. I'm just, I'm saying I'm an empath and that's the way that I am. I'm talking that this is the, 
uh, this is restricting me again. So I'm always very conscious um, of ever labeling something and then saying, that's the way that I am. I would rather go, let me, if there's, if there's uh, reasons, biological reasons that I'm born with, that's great. I absolutely believe I'm, I'm born with a level of sensitivity, right? I absolutely believe that. But then for me, I think the rest of it is all about survival stuff. It's survival stuff that I learned. You know, I, it makes perfect sense that somebody, I don't want to tell my older brother's story, right? But my older brother, who I'm very close with, definitely doesn't have the level of emotional sensitivity that I do, right? I feel like I know him well enough to know that, yeah? So when there's stuff going on in the house and it's all under the carpet and it's being swept under there and mum's acting like everything's all right, but I know dad's acting different. I'm in tune with that, yeah? Yes. So my brain started to scatter, to disassociate, to disconnect from myself. Thank God it did because with the level of sensitivity that turns into hypervigilance that I recognize in myself in my life today. Yeah. It's almost like, I wish I could just go back to being as scattered as I must've been when I was a child. Right. In some ways. Yeah. Cause then I'd be able to survive my life today a little bit easier. It's almost like the awareness in some ways sort of scuppers that a bit. Yes, indeed. So yeah, I, I always worry that, um, the absence of connecting it to and, and by the way i think at a real sort of top level it's not talked the childhood stuff's not talked about properly because the solution is to fund young children and families adequately so that there's way more emotionally available adults supporting our young children and I, like i i didn't have that i didn't have i didn't have an adult that i could go to to talk to about my pain to talk to about my struggle uh the reality of it. I didn't have that. I don't think most kids do. No, I don't think so. And I want to give you a massive round of applause for that because we are singing from the same hymn sheet. I think that we need investment into families. We need investment into helping parents understand them, like this vital, vital role they do. And in many parents' defense, we did not know how important parenting was. We didn't know the stuff we know now about the brain and um, about our nervous systems and, um, you know, neuroscience has massively developed in the last 40 years. So, and I'm 47, so of course my parents didn't know about that stuff. But we, I think there was this misnomer that children are, first of all, resilient and that they don't remember anything. But we now know we remember everything in our bodies. And But I think that to some extent, capitalism and um, our society survives on us being disconnected because those of us who are disconnected are often the best workers because we just work and work and work to the point of self-abandonment because we are desperate for that praise, that praise that you talked about with, you know, your 500 people like worshiping you on the stage. We get that in many different ways. Like we need so much more early intervention for, for all families. Like it needs not to be even like no means testing or anything like that. Help everyone. Everyone. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know, in today's world, we talk about mental health crises. We got mental health crisis, mental health problems. I think we have a social problem. I think we have a social problem. Now, look, I'm not against capitalism. I, I run a business, right? But I do believe that we've moved into to, to hyper-capitalism, right? Which is like profit before anything. And I think when you start to understand that, when the solution is a social one, then, it, you know, the solution needs to come from those in power taking a hit and really investing in the young people, in, in children and families. 
The issue with that is, is that what you could do instead of that is just go, this is all completely biological. You could medicalize it all straight away and then profit off of it. Yes. Actually, if you take a, a dysfunctional family system, right, and, and you go, rather than looking at the problem, we'll, we'll let the sort of children take take on roles within the system, yeah? I actually think that's... It's an exact mirror. It's an exact mirror of what's going on on a social level. So we actually live in a very, very toxic and dysfunctional society, right? And so, like you say, I don't think it makes sense for people at the top of that structure to empower young people. And I know that sounds awful, but I, I, I feel like that's where we are. I think that what you just said about, you know, we need to... Because the the kind of the essence of the dysfunctional family is that the needs of the parents are put before the needs of the children, and um, we have that definitely in our society, or well, certainly in all the um, Western dem- democracies. But how do you? Because I sort of ponder this a lot in my mind, but I have to kind of focus, refocus on what can I do now? How can I help my own family? Actually, because there's a tendency often when we maybe think a lot about other things or we've had a lot of our own trauma. We want to like change everything out there, but actually our most magic work is in our own families and in ourselves. How do you kind of hold the both end of those things and not neglect yourself, actually, not neglect your own inner child, like we were just talking about, and turn up for your family? Yeah. So there's a really important thing here, right? I talked about emotionally available adults, right? In simple terms, if we went back to how we once lived and we lived in tribes and, you know, uh, mum and dad would go out hunting and the kids would stay at home with the wise old elders, right? And and and, and they would probably learn around them and, and gain a lot of understanding about things. How do I find ways to build community in my life today? So let me ask the, answer the family one first. How close can I keep other loving, trusted adults within my family life? Am I working on like the relationship with my brother and sister-in-law? So my wife's sister and, 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 and her partner, very, very close to our family. We're very, we're regularly over there. I know that my kids will confide in them if, if it's about me, for example, right? And that's lovely for your kids to have that. They need that. They like, yeah, they yeah. absolutely need it. So what am I, what am I doing to nurture trusted adults? within my personal community for my children. Yeah. That's on that level. Then on a personal level, I'm, I have to constantly work on my own community. Right. And what does that look like for me? What I recognized in very recently, like the last three or four years is I didn't have many trusted men in my life. Right. When you, you look deep enough, I felt men couldn't be trusted. I felt men would hurt you ultimately. I felt if they were big and strong, then they were going to try and overpower you. So I wouldn't trust them with anything. I knew how to tell them I had their back. You know, if you want to have a fight, you know, I'll be there for you. I knew how to do that. But I didn't know how to let a man care for me uh, and to try and care for another man. So uh, over the last three or four years, I've nurtured relationships with other men uh, very purposely and, and allowed them to be part of my my sort of, close circle in that way and and you know i run a men's event that's run for 18 months and you might think well you, you must have loads of trusted men but i ran the event i spent the first eight nine months of that event leading the event 
Yeah, never, you know, getting all these men to come together and be vulnerable together and setting up exercises and wondering about holding the space and never doing any of the stuff myself, <laughs> you know, so I have to like, you, you know, it's, co it's constantly evaluating the work that I'm doing on myself, but I, like we've touched on the fact that I believe that we're existing in societal systems that cause that. So for me, so for me, community starts small and then you and then you work out from there what what's my close-knit very trusted family community do i have wider community am i looking to build community in my life in that way and i think that's been that's been vital for me because you know one of the other sayings it takes a village to raise a child and all that sort of stuff i can't do this on my own right because there's there's often when i go prolonged periods of time without being available for anyone let alone my kids uh and the same is true for my wife so my kids need as many emotionally trusted, available adults in their life as they can. And I have to, I have to make sure that I don't try and take control of all of that. You know, if my, if my, you know, if my kid needs an extra support, I don't need to cling on to why can't I do it as their dad? I know that they need extra support and I need to get myself out of the way so they can have that. Yeah, that's lovely. Such lovely humility that you're modeling there, because I think that it's really and we've touched on this kind of throughout this, but it's really difficult to hold on to the fact often that we have wounds and that those wounds play out in very real ways in the relationships where we are most close to people and in the relationships where we are responsible for people. And that bringing in more help or kind of support is really useful. And I think that lots and lots in the parental space and in the motherhood space, we have a thing about the village as well. And Many of us, especially if you're like in a cycle breaker, my parents are dead, but lots of people may be ostracized or kind of um, cut off from their parents or not have such a great relationship. And so we might have to pay for a village, you know, pay for childcare. And I think also our village is, it's in many different layers. You know, it might be some people you go to an AA meeting with. It might be people at the corner shop who you see every day when you go my milk. And it might be the person who, I don't know, cuts your hair. And because I've really realized that, when we're open to it, there's so much connection that we can get where you can really feel that goodness inside of you. But it's just like a really casual interaction or it's the, it's the people that your kids go to school with. And you might not know them really deeply, but there's so much holding that's provided there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we've sort of come away from that, right? Over the years, we're sort of taught, you know, you see news stories of children going missing and stuff like that so we're taught that the world out there is scary and it's you know don't trust anybody when actually we need to bring these things back like you like you said i often i often talk about like yeah uh, and, and this is probably being overly romantic but once upon a time you'd have the milkman right and he was like a bit of an old guy and he loved kids and he'd bring sweets and like when he was round, the, the kids would go and see him and he'd give them sweets and he sort of knew which ones might have been struggling so would I don't know, tell parables that would help the kids. And the, like in today's world, it would be, you'd be told to keep your kids away from him because he's dodgy. Why has he got sweets for the kids, you know? So like we need to- It's really a balance. It's a balance. Yeah, we need to try and get back to, like you said, the hairdresser who comes around who's a, who's a lovely person or, or whatever it is, and just allowing community to exist in that way, as well as, by the way, as the world changes and evolves, finding new ways as well, you know, for community, using- online mechanisms and stuff like that as much as we can to make sure that we're doing the in-person stuff but but evolving to, to evolving and keeping community 
at the centre of that. It's it can easily get left out and forgotten the importance of community. I think it I think it often does get left out because I talk about loving my time on my own, yeah, because I do love my time on my own. But one of the biggest reasons for that is because I don't have to do any work when I'm on my own because I'm on my own. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know what, do, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. So like, the, like it, there was hyper independence where everyone was like, don't need anyone but yourself. And then we sort of realized, hang on a minute, that's a bit dodgy because your trauma plays out in your relationships. And then if we're not careful, and I'm the most guilty of this, we start promoting, you know, get to a place where you're comfortable on your own. And it's like, yeah. Uh, and, and has that moved into, I'm on my own all of the time, so I don't have to do any of the work because it plays out when I'm trying to build relationships with people. You know what I mean? So Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because it is, it's really, it's nerve wracking. Um, if we've got any wounding in our relationships, nerve wracking, like what you said, I love what you said about consciously building relationships with men. And I am working to also consciously build more adult friendships because I noticed I felt really lonely. Mm. And, and my, some of my friendship groups shifted at the beginning of motherhood. And I used to have a lot of f- friends in recovery because I also started out, I had a long journey in CODA, which really changed my life. Um, but it's it's kind of trying to create spaces where you can meet people who are like-minded and then have enough bravery to actually be vulnerable and it's it's nerve-wracking because as adults you know when you're when you're at school or something you kind of get to know someone's whole family and you go into their house and everything but things are so disparate here so that you don't really make those um type of connections that easily and i really think we need to treasure and nurture adult relationships apart from our main love relationship because otherwise we put way too much pressure like on our love relationship and they cannot give us everything our partner if we have a partner yeah exactly and that's you know that your sort of bigger community away from that becomes really important yeah and like you say we often end up looking for it just in that relationship and then it's too much pressure and it can never heed what is needed you know yeah it can never offer it now this podcast is called grow yourself up so tell us a bit about how you, I loved your story you told us about your 12-year-old son and how you really noticed how he was trying to connect in the sensitivity. But tell us other ways how you've grown yourself up. Like I've put a lot of importance on what you talked about, about regulation, but like widening our window of tolerance so we can be present for our children. Um, how do you work on letting them be who as they are and letting go of control? How do you work on your own flexibility? You know, so that they can be who they are again. So look, breath work's really important for me on that front. Yeah. Like the, the regular breath work practice for myself. And because that helps me come out of my head and come back into my body and clear all of the noise that hinders me. Yeah. When I'm fully present, when I'm fully present and fully in my body and fully in the experience, there's nothing to do. Yeah. Because I, there's nothing to do because I'm fully present. Just be. Yeah. Yeah. So like how, you know, as much work as I can, to do that, like on a day-to-day basis, my my kids are my life now, you know. My kids are my life. The, the weekends is all, you know, we're doing their clubs and stuff. And I've, I feel like because of the life I lived, right, and because of where I went with my life, because of what I experienced with my dad, I'd there's no pictures of my dad in my house, right? My kids don't know who my dad, my dad was, right? I grew up after he died. My mum had already remarried. We we didn't talk about him. Nobody talks about him. I didn't even know the day that he died. I didn't know his birthday. Uh, there was no pictures in the house. It, I was never told your dad loved this. Apart from football, we knew that. Um, it just wasn't spoke about. And, you know, all I really care about in my life now is that 
I'm not grandiose. I don't want, I just hope that when I'm gone, my, you know, there'll be a picture of me on the wall and somebody will say to their kids, that was your granddad or that was your great granddad. And he was a, he was a decent bloke. Honestly, that drives me in my work and it drives me at home, you know, and I, I, I know I was a terrible human being, let alone dad for, till I was 24. So I'm so, I, I, like, I sort of have so much compassion for myself to even be where I am today. And I know that, I know that I'm doing my best. I know that I'm doing my best on, on any given day, even on the bad days. I know that you're doing your best. And that's all I can do, I think. Yeah, I think that's all you can do. It's all any of us can do. And, I, and it frees our children to be who they are and to do their best too, so that we have a deep sense of, of our enoughness and that they get a deep sense of their enoughness. Yeah. By really, because it sounds like you really grapple with so much in terms of presence and modeling for them. For me, in my language, your your breath work widens your window of tolerance so you can be present and so things don't dysregulate you so much. To really see that being worked on, I think. Like see, our kids seeing us, uh, seeing us work on ourselves, I think is so valuable because it shows none of us, none of us are finished product. I don't think we ever be get to be finished products. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, y- you know, we often, I think it's a mistake to, if you're not careful, you create like a shame less environment you know we get so terrified of having any shame in the house that you like create this shameless environment where it's like no you're walking around just trying to be the best version of yourself all of the time and it's unrealistic for for everyone it's unrealistic for everyone involved yeah like my kids know i'm a flawed human being yeah and i'm thankful that they do and and so often i say i'm saying to them you know I know it was a nightmare yesterday. I know it was a nightmare. I'm sorry that was a nightmare. That was me. It was nothing to do with you. Um, like I can try and be better today and you, you'll know as well as I do that sometimes I'm not. And in teaching them that I'm a flawed human being, hopefully they'll learn that. Because I grew up, by the way, thinking that if you felt let down by somebody, it meant you loved them less. So, yeah, do you know what I mean? So, because I would used to say, if I ever said, you know, why didn't dad just stop drinking? It was like, your dad loved you very much. All right, so so then you learn like you can't be faultless because if you do, then it's a lack of love, right? And yeah, you don't want to go there neither. You don't want to live in that state, you know? Yeah, and also that shuts us down so much. That thing about why can't he just stop drinking and not actually engaging with us about like I, I spent my whole years trying to get my dad to stop drinking. That was my role in the family, and I think that there's so much more conversation. We're not going to do that now, but around. um just actually having an honest conversation about he he can't. It's not that he he doesn't love you, but he's using this. This is to deal with his own pain, his own trauma, and also I sometimes think they they don't have any other way they can be. They've never learned that there's another way to start to learn to regulate your feelings. And they, I think, the core of healing from addiction, I think, is learning to sit without distress. Yeah, 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 yeah. Definitely, that's been my experience. But my dad never learned to do that. Anyway, um, Josh, I'm conscious of the time and um, the time is moving on. Tell us, um, maybe as the last question, how do you bring more ease into your life? Like how do you welcome in not, welcome, not perfection and, and just um, 
like joy and um, prioritizing fun things and the easy options instead of like trying to think you have to get it all like, I don't know, perfect and do the hard stuff. Yeah, I guess like uh, I, I was always the mascot child when I was a kid, yeah. So I was the one whose job it was to make everybody happy in the house, you know, and to, to mess around. So like I've always I've always had that in me. Um, and just being able to... Sh- to shut everything off and have fun. You know, I think it's probably the under talked about stuff in the healing space a lot that I find, you know, I do a lot of breath works and then I say the topic for today is going to be joy I, in my community space. I remember the first time I did it, I was like, the topic today is going to be joy. And I could see everyone's face like, Oh, I don't, I don't really do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then afterwards it was like, I'm so busy trying to be better all of the time. Like I really don't take myself too seriously you know probably a trauma response at the beginning the sort of self-deprivation stuff right but i really uh, everything's a joke i love to make a joke out of any out of anything and everything and just going out and and having fun and like being again quite strategic about it as in making sure that i'm looking at the diary and making sure that i'm looking at things and where do i build these moments in because by the way our book these amazing holidays, which I'm very grateful I can do today, right? We, you know, I get to take my kids to some amazing places. But I'm telling you now, the best moments of presence happen when I go, do you know what? I'm going to shut the laptop today and I'm going to get home in time for the school run. Yeah, and I'm and I'm like, because presence happens in those moments. It don't come with, you know, I've led on beaches and sat there in, you know, completely activated, taking loads of pictures because I, I know I'm not enjoying it. So I, I, I'll enjoy it when I'm less activated at home or looking back at the pictures. Yeah, right. Uh, I've done all of that. Some of the greatest moments in my life when I'm sat around the table playing Monopoly with the kids, yeah. And you come round and you think, God, we've been doing this for about 20 minutes, right? And I haven't thought about anything else other than whose go it is and what we're doing. Those moments come when you make sure you do things like put your phone away or when was the last time I sat with the kids? Let me make sure I'm doing it. You've got to actively do it, you know? Um, and then those moments of presence breed the desire for more. They can't not. It's so true. And I think that what you said about when you choose joy, because, and I've been guilty of this, of, of getting stuck in the darkness of being so good at processing my trauma or kind of obsessed with like what trauma response am I doing now or whatever and forgetting that you just can pivot to the joy at any point no matter where you are on a journey and that actually that is much more important and it, it gives you more kind of um capacity to actually do any trauma processing you need to but to not get sort of stuck in the tunnel of hardness you have to kind of go towards the light and I have to find that I have to constantly choose that or kind of re-choose for that yeah you have to choose to play in it you have to choose to play sometimes you know and because because otherwise you go oh look I'm becoming the version of myself where I'm trying to make everybody laugh and it's like actually just become the part of yourself that's here in that and just laugh at yourself and play and just play and just know I'm just playing I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Uh, it's not. It's not easy. I guess if it was, then we'd all be doing it. <laughs> exactly, Josh. This has been so lovely. Thank you. Thank you so so much for taking the time to join us. Can you tell the listeners a bit about where they can find you? I mean, I'll put all your social media handles and details into the show notes. But just tell us about um, how they can work with you, and 
you know, your Instagram handle and everything. Yeah. So like my website's just joshconnolly.co.uk. All of my social medias on there, but I'm josh underscore FFW on Instagram, which is probably where I'm busiest and all of my links, you'll find all of my links there. I sort of regularly offer free breath works and stuff like that so that people can give it a try. Uh, so yeah, you, but every, all the information's on my website and Instagram and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Cause you've also got a, a six week program, I think that people can do with you. Yeah. So I run that about three times a year. That's called inner you. Um, and I also I have a community space as well where we, we come together at least once a week. So we have a sharing circle once a week that everyone's welcome to. And then each month we get four or five different modalities in. So we've got bio tuning, I think coming up in a couple of days, someone's going to come in and do that for us online. So wonderful. And is that men and women? That's men and women. Yeah. And it's, um, it's 10 pound, 12 pound or 15 pound a month. Um, and you get the same access for all of them. You just pay which one is the right affordability for you. Okay, great. Thank you so much, Josh. Thank you for your time and your energy and all your stories. It's been wonderful to have you on. Thank you. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.